Thank you for joining us for another edition of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Johnny Foster. Today I speak with Jason Barney. Jason is the author of Northern Vermont in the War of 1812, which is available now online and in your local bookstore. Jason is a former Vermont state representative, and after his political career, his love for history led him into education and into joining his local historical society in Swanton, Vermont. Jason, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, uh, no problem. I'm uh, glad to uh, be on with you guys. Uh, this is my uh, second media appearance today, so uh, hopefully it'll do well for the book. Yeah, I hope so too. And like I said in the email yesterday, I'm excited to get people you know, even more excited about the War of 1812. It's a war that I've always been interested in. And I feel like people think about, you know, the war just being the burning of the White House or the Star Spangled Banner being written at Fort McHenry or, you know, the Battle of New Orleans, which technically didn't even need to be fought. But a lot of the war, and that's later half of the war when that happens, a lot of the war is actually fought along the Canadian border. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned um, probably the three events that uh, most people with even a mild interest in history would uh, probably be able to locate in their memory. But you're right, the War of 1812 is, is much broader. And uh, I grew up in uh, Highgate, Vermont, right up on the Canadian border, and uh, have always loved history. Uh, when I was a student, I probably liked um, the Civil War or World War II as an area of study. But uh, as I got older, I started to look into a little bit of local history and was shocked to learn that the War of 1812 was basically, or parts of the War of 1812 were basically fought in the area that I grew up in. And where did you grow up? So um, Highgate, Vermont is right on Lake Champlain. Uh, it is the town that is on the Canadian border. Uh, there's one other town, Alberg, uh, that separates uh, Vermont from uh, New York. Um but yeah, we're right up on the Canadian border. We're as far northwest as you can be um, in the state of Vermont. Okay, and it's a beautiful area there. I've been up there a few times, and uh, just wonderful country to drive through. Also there. Yeah, the the house that I grew up in is within walking distance of the Canadian border. So uh, I live in St. Albans now. Uh, the the book itself is mostly about the Swanton Highgate uh, northwestern Vermont area. Um, if any of your listeners are familiar with Vermont or familiar with the War of 1812, uh, they may have heard of um, Burlington, Vermont, or Plattsburgh, New York. Uh, and those are two areas that have received uh, quite a bit of attention with respect to the War of 1812. But one of the themes explored in the book is that uh, you can have Lake Champlain and you can have larger communities like Burlington and Plattsburgh that there's quite a bit of history to uncover with the smaller communities and the smaller communities uh, were definitely important hubs that branch off from the activity that was happening in, in Burlington and Plattsburgh. Yeah. And you know, one thing with this podcast that I keep trying to uh, drive home is that local history leads to national and international history. And for people who aren't familiar with the war of 1812, this wasn't just really the United States versus Britain. This is going to be a worldwide conflict, and that was part of the reason why yeah. Britain couldn't wholeheartedly commit forces to fight the United States so early on. Can you kind of give uh, listeners an idea of the causes of us entering into war with Britain? 
Yeah. Um, so the uh, Napoleonic Wars are going on throughout Europe. And the United States, the founding fathers wanted us to try to remain in a position where we were not entangled by European conflicts, which is, you know, not a not a bad thing to try to promote. But the further you go into the Napoleonic conflicts, the harder it is for the United States to remain neutral. Um, we sort of have a relationship with France because France helped us win the American Revolution. As you uh, get into the early 1800s, uh, Vermont has become a state. Uh, Vermont is the only landlocked uh, New England state, and most of Vermont's economic trade is with Canada, and Canada at that point in time is part of England. So you have this uh, situation where England is at war with France, and England does not like the fact that some of its citizens have left to become American citizens. And you have the historically documented instance several times where uh, impressment happened, where British ships would stop American vessels on the high seas, and they would uh, force American subjects, uh, former British citizens, to um, either finish the term at sea or, or into service with the American Navy. So that actually almost leads to war uh, one time. And uh, when you get into the international part of it, uh, President Jefferson and the other early founding fathers were uh, very disappointed with the attitude of many Vermonters, uh, because on the local level, many Vermonters uh, were not looking at it as an international affairs issue, that uh, as tensions are rising with both Britain and France, but mostly with Britain, um, that uh, the federal government didn't want us trading with England or any English colonies, and many Vermonters decided to uh, look the other way or to participate in trade. So when you get into uh, 1807, 1808, one of the reasons why there ends up being even a, a small American military presence up here on Lake Champlain is because of the amount of smuggling that's happening at the time. It's local people who just understood the local politics or national politics, but they made the economic choice that their livelihood was more important than any sort of uh, far off political gesturing. Yeah. And you know, the area that this is faulted, uh, even before European settlement, it seemed to, I was reading in the book, there was conflicts that happened in this area, uh, you know, before, you know, even, even one European settler had set foot on it. What makes this area so valuable as a territory to occupy or conquer? Well, so even before the main subject of the book, and I get this in a, a little bit into chapter one and the intro, um, Vermont is unique in the sense that there is so much documented history here going back, not um, decades or centuries, but thousands of years. So, Entire books have been written on, on this topic, but the Native American history here um, is uh, incredible. Uh, we have a, uh, a river and a bay here called Missisquoi Bay, Missisquoi River. And basically, archaeologists have been able to document all over northwestern Vermont uh, Native American habitation going back about 10,000 years or more. And... Uh, all of those archaeological digs have happened within 
10 miles of my home within 20 miles of, of the public high school up here. So when archaeologists study the artifacts that they uncover and they go through time, um, you can date those are uh, those artifacts and you can date some things to thousands of years ago and then you can date uh, some things to just a couple of hundred, hundred years ago. So when whites first show up in North America, the uh, areas that are colonizing New England or the countries that are colonizing New England, you have England down along the coast of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, Maine, and you've got uh, France colonizing Canada. And in that time period, in, in, the, in the contact time, time period, you have a lot of uh, documented Abnaki history and St. Lawrence Iroquoian history and Iroquois history. And there's some evidence that uh, even before the whites, that there was a little bit of warfare going on um, between some of the Native American tribes. Archaeologists have uncovered um, palisaded forts uh, in certain areas. Those wouldn't be as local as, as northwest Vermont, but uh, definitely uh, up here in, uh, in the northern part of the country. And then when the whites show up, um, the natives have to deal with the diseases, but uh, the Europeans bring warfare with them. So in the intro to the book, I give a little bit of information about uh, the early French and Indian Wars and what uh, Lake Champlain meant as far as a travel route. If any of your listeners are uh, familiar with New England or if they have a map handy, basically Lake Champlain sort of cuts the northern part of the country uh, in half, um, at least when you're talking in historical terms. So you have the Richelieu River, which goes up to the Montreal area. And then you've got Lake Champlain, which uh, separates New York and Vermont. And um, historically speaking, that's significant because once New York is settled, uh, you've got the Hudson River Valley and the Hudson River going all the way up to New York. So uh, at the time period, the important travel routes um, were not really land routes because you'd have to either march or go by wagon. If somebody controlled a waterway, and Lake Champlain was the most significant waterway, then uh, troop movements and supply movements would be much, much easier. So if any of your listeners are familiar with Fort Ticonderoga, that's the history of Fort Ticonderoga. Fort Ticonderoga is on Lake Champlain, and Fort Ticonderoga's original history is with uh, the French and Indian War, uh, even though a lot of people uh, associate it with the Revolutionary War. It's uh, it's really important to, to two conflicts. Uh, and then at that time period, trains hadn't been invented yet, so when you get into the War of 1812, um, Lake Champlain, again, is, is one of the most important water routes. And uh, just as in the French and Indian War and just as in the Revolutionary War, um, England, uh, was, England was in a position where they could take advantage of the water routes. And that's why um, Lake Champlain and the Missisquoi Bay area are uh, important to the subject of the book. So era in the beginning of the war, uh Obviously, Canada is a you know territory is British controlled, and yep. so Britain are going. Will they be sending troops from Canada trying to invade in the area that you're writing about? And is this going to be the focal point at the beginning of the war? Yeah, well, even specific to that. Um, so when you get into that 1808 time period, um, there's a uh, event up here that is slightly known, but at the time. Uh, it became national news. There's something called the Black Snake Affair. And basically, uh, the uh, national officials, the federal government, they were trying to clamp down on smuggling. And, and they could 
put squads of soldiers or company of soldiers in Swanton along the Canadian border. Uh, but really, the majority of the smuggling is happening on the lake. And there are ship owners up here, um, Gideon King and the Boynton family. Uh, basically, uh, Burlington, Vermont, when you get to 1810, was the third largest timber port um, in the country, which is kind of weird if you think about it because Vermont's so landlocked. Yeah. But uh, Vermont, Vermont had a lot of uh, wood available, and our main trading partner was not any of the other New England states. It was using Lake Champlain and the Richelieu River, and it was Montreal and, and England buying our products. So, But when you get to 1808, there's the Black Snake Affair, and that's uh, a group of smugglers who were basically operating a uh, boat that had been converted for a little bit of speed at a single mast, and they were running potash and, and other supplies up and down Lake Champlain. And the revenue cutters um, get wind that this one vessel is, is making all of these different runs up and down the lake. So the, the guy's name is Jabez Teneman. He's the local customs officer up here. He uh, decides to send the revenue cutters after the Black Snake, and they uh, catch up to it um, just south of the area where I live, uh, one of the rivers north of Burlington. And uh, three, I think it's two or three revenue agents get killed. Uh, the Black, Black Snake gets seized, and there's a uh, public execution uh, that fall. And Cyrus B. Dean of Swanton. Um, gets hung in Battery Park in Burlington, and it makes national news. And there's um, apparently either Thomas Jefferson or some of Thomas Jefferson's um, cabinet officials. They were uh, there's documentation, there's primary sources about them being concerned and upset about the amount of smuggling that was happening on Lake Champlain. Yeah, and you know you mentioned the the embargo acts and things happening again. I mean, at one time we couldn't trade with. Britain, and then I think it was President Jefferson didn't want to make the rest of the European powers upset, so he said, "Okay, we're not trading with anybody," and including you know your area in Vermont down here in Charleston. Oh yeah, uh, it, it, it yeah. affected trade and commerce. I mean, it almost killed the fishing industry right in New England. So, uh, yeah, it was a very uh, big as far deal. as Vermont, as far as Vermonters were concerned, uh, it became a personal choice for them because yeah. if it's if it's eighteen oh five, eighteen oh seven. And there's tensions with England, but they're trading with the English-controlled but French-Canadian population just north of the border. Um, that's normal life, you know. If somebody's buying your timber or somebody's buying your 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 beef or your potash, but then uh, as soon as it becomes a national struggle and there are customs agents um, on the border, but then as war gets closer, uh, you have to imagine some of the people up here are hopefully having a little bit of a, an intellectual um, questioning or thought process about whether or not it's moral to uh, continue to trade with somebody who your nation is about to go to war with or whose uh, situation is, is crumbling. So then as the war gets um, closer, the, the war doesn't erupt. Uh, war's not declared until June 18th, um, 1812. But uh, there are instances where um, agents are sent up here and the federal government decides to coordinate with Jabez Penniman. And in Swanton, there are uh, basically small militia units and small federal government units that are used to um, patrol the northern frontier. 
And it's not until the fall of 1811 and the spring of 1812 that the barracks in Swanton, which is a, receives quite a bit of focus in the book, and that's actually where my interest for this whole project um, started. The uh, barracks in Swanton gets um, gets built. It's built from the, the pine woods, uh, the pine trees that are basically in the center of town. And uh, I think the federal government gave the nod of approval for the barracks to be constructed because they wanted a base uh, to, number one, clamp down on the smuggling, but number two, I think the writing was on the wall that negotiations with England over the long term were not going very well, and uh, they wanted to have a headquarters up here right on the border. Yeah, I know there was some militia that would be sent up too, but these revenue uh, cutters, was this a forerunner mm-hmm. to the Coast Guard, the modern course Coast Guard? Yeah, um, I, the uh, pl- the internal politics of the country were a little bit different at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go if you go back over the some of the primary source documentation, the idea of having a national standing army uh, was kind of against uh, states' rights because states thought many states thought that they would have standing militias and that those militias would be able to serve the purpose of a national army if there was a period where, where war erupted. Um, as uh, the War of 1812 unfolds, though, and we can talk about this later, um, the Vermont militia, or at least the Vermont attitude, Vermont militia attitude about helping the, the National Army uh, doesn't go exactly very well. Yeah, and actually that was something I was going to jump into next because I wanted to ask, who is serving in northern Vermont? Is it Vermont militia? Is it troops called in also from other states? Yeah. So um, very early in the war, and this is something that you mentioned at the at the start of the podcast about the scope of the war. So very early in the war, war is declared on, um, I believe it's uh, June 18th. And uh, the American leadership at the time, the generals, the national generals, they basically had an idea of a three-pronged attack into Canada. And even though Jefferson is no longer president, he had the idea that uh, he's quoted as saying and have written that basically the idea of seizing Canada is as easy as marching north. And so the American generals, what they decide to do is because the country isn't what you would think of now, you would think of the western frontier as sort of the Great Lakes area and the Mississippi River. Uh, The generals had this idea that they would send an invasion force up into the Great Lakes area, and they would send an invasion force in the area of Lake Erie and Toronto, uh, roughly. And then there would be a third invasion force up the Champlain Valley. So before I answer the question about uh, who was serving up here, it's important um, to understand that military action did start relatively quickly after the declaration of war. But uh, there was an American army defeated out in the Great Lakes area by Detroit. Mm-hmm. Uh, very early in the war. And then there was another American army that was defeated in the area of uh, Lake, Erie, Lake, Lake Erie as you get into the fall. So the American leadership uh, decided to um, roll the dice and see if there was enough time to organize an army in northwest Vermont and upstate New York uh, prior to the arrival of winter. So the barracks that had been constructed in Swanton they uh, basically asked the gover- governor to uh, muster the militia, and the militia units at the time were regiments, and each regiment was made up of companies 
uh, of soldiers and the company would be anywhere as small as 25 guys to as many as 75 guys. So there's uh, the militia regiment that first gets stationed in Swanton. It's a Colonel William Williams. And uh, that the, the source that I get that information from is really the source that leads to my initial interest in the War of 1812 and um, what leads to the book. So they, uh, a lot of towns have local history books that have been written about those towns over the years. And one that my grandfather, Kenneth Barney, was really, really interested in was the uh, Barney Perry history book that was written in, I think it's 1881. And I can remember my grandfather being really, really into genealogy and having this uh, family tree uh, on a, almost a whiteboard on his home. And, and I probably get some of my love of history from my dad and, and from my grandfather. But in that Barney Perry history book, it's got two pages, two or three pages of information on the War of 1812. And it mentions the smuggling ahead of time, and it mentions Jabez Penniman and trying to clamp down on the smuggling. But then when war erupts, it also mentions uh, the barracks being constructed and that militia units were stationed in town. And uh, it's Colonel William Williams. Uh, he has uh, eight or nine different companies that are stationed up here with him. And they get here probably about this time of year, maybe a little bit earlier. They are the kind of the, the first um, guard they're really not part of an invasion force yet. They're more up here to try to clamp down on the smuggling. One of the things I go into in quite a bit of detail in the book is the fact that there really wasn't a threat from um, Britain or Canada at this point in time, at least in this area. Even though an American army had been defeated in Detroit and another one had been defeated over by Lake Erie, uh, the uh, only British base in our neck of the woods is a small island uh, about eight or nine miles north of us called Illinois. And that's sort of on the northern edge of Lake Champlain as it connects to the Richelieu River. And then that goes up to the Mont east of the Montreal area. So there's only five or six, maybe four or 500 um, British soldiers that are stationed at Illinois. And you have William Williams Regiment here in Swanton, and you've got some American Army officials in uh, upstate New York, uh, but really you don't have much of a military presence here. And if you go over the historical documentation, there really wasn't the threat of a British invasion here because they just didn't have the uh, forces assembled. But if you read the local newspapers at the time, they were uh, they made sure to uh, the pro-war newspapers, uh, the patriotic newspapers, they publicize how many Native Americans uh, were allied to the British and, and trancing through the woods up in Canada because there were, were always stories of the French and Indian War and the Revolutionary War about about Indian raids. So uh, William Williams' regiment, uh, when they get here, it's about 400 guys, and basically their job during August and September and October is to kind of patrol the border. And when does it start to escalate? Um, after those two defeats uh, earlier, um, the American army in Burlington, uh, the, the main colonel up here is a guy by the name of Isaac Clark. And the the, the real neat uh, historical nuggets, the, the pieces that I was able to grab onto as a 
local history teacher and then somebody who wanted to write and tell the story. The uh, main American Army presence is going to be in Plattsburgh. Uh, there's a uh, American colonel, another Zebulon Pike, who some of your your listeners may be familiar with. Pike uh, They're yeah. So they're basically um, assembling in upstate New York, and uh, the Vermont militia. Another unit of Vermont militia gets called out. Um, colonel Fifield's unit, and Colonel Fifield's unit also gets ordered into Swanton. Uh, so the locals, uh, I'm sure the amount of smuggling going on at that time probably was clamped down, but it still um, was continuing. And in the fall of 1812, there are uh, primary sources that are available here at the UVM Special Collections that are uh, letters and, and handwritten notes from some of the colonels to some of the company commanders about going into the towns on the frontier and trying to cut down on smuggling. The interesting thing, uh, so the, the question that we were asking earlier about uh, to at what point is smuggling with the country that you're about to go to war with uh, treason or just a, an immoral decision. Um, colonel Williams, the first colonel, one of the units that he had mustered was the uh, company unit from Highgate, Vermont, which is the town that I grew up on, grew up in, which is right on the border. Um, that's uh, Conrad Sachs. And uh, if you just think of it historically, uh, or if you're a smuggler, what group of individuals would know the smuggling routes any better than the people who live there? So my guess is that Conrad Sachs company from Highgate was actually still involved in some of the smuggling. And there's evidence that uh, Colonel Williams, he actually gets drummed out of the service the next year because of suspicions that he was sort of looking the other way as some either some of his men or some of the locals continued to profit from the smuggling that was underway. So there's a bit of intrigue, uh, too, with this story, then. Yeah, yeah. There, there's other information, you know, that could be uncovered. I'm not saying there's going to be a, a part two to the book, but uh, uh, I am a history teacher, and one of the things I get my students to sort of latch on is, latch onto is who was involved with the smuggling, and, and was it, uh, how bad of a decision was it? Was it treason, or was it just a bad decision? Uh, as you get into the Fall of 1812, uh, Britain and France, or sorry, Britain and uh, French Canada, because the French Canadians, they obviously didn't want to be uh, invaded by the Americans. They uh, start to send uh, reinforcements to uh, Illinois, just over the border, and that starts to show up in the press, too, uh, that the Americans are uh, preparing for an invasion. But it's not very well planned. Um, there's some historical references that some of the American army soldiers don't have winter gear. Uh, their uh, bases in Burlington and their bases in Plattsburgh uh, really haven't been constructed yet, but the American generals are going to roll the dice. And what all of the American military presence up here in the fall of 1812 culminates in is uh, something called the First Battle of McColl Mill, which is just over the border. And uh, it does not go very well for the Americans. Can you tell us, I mean, I don't want you to give away obviously what happened, even though it is history, but a little bit about what went wrong. Cause it reminds me a little bit too, cause I know you earlier, you said that Thomas Jefferson, you know, said all we have to do is March North to take Canada, but kind of reminds me too of Benedict Arnold in the revolutionary war, trying to go and take Quebec kind of around the same time of year. 
Well, and it's the same area. It's the exact same area. If anybody reads up on the Revolutionary War, uh, that is happening in the exact same locations up here that are covered in the book. Uh, Benedict Arnold and the Battle of Valcour Island and the invasion of Canada in uh, 1775, 1776. Uh, those are uh, events that happen right here on the Lake Champlain, uh, about six, eight, ten miles away from where I'm talking to you now. Wow, that's incredible. There's a lot of history you do have up there. So there is, you know, water is playing an important part. I know people think, you know, Vermont water, but, you know, Lake Champlain, you know, you've mentioned there. Uh, where are most of the battles going to be fought in this area? Is it going to be land, water? Well, so the the, the Battle of La Colle Mill, um, it, it ends up uh, basically being in a, a rush by the Americans to try to honor their original agreement. To, or their original thoughts that they could march into Canada and then march into to Montreal. Um, that's a defeat for the Americans, and it's a defeat partially because of a friendly fire incident that happens on the uh, morning of the of the Volley Exchange. I think it's November 20th or November 21st. Uh, the interesting thing about that is that the militia units that had been stationed in Swanton uh, and the militia units, the other Vermont militia units, they refuse to cross the border. So you have this four or 5,000 man army in upstate New York ready to show its muscle and, and, and go over the border. But the uh, Vermont militia units say, no, we really didn't agree to, um, you know, we agreed to defend the frontier and we agreed to cut down on smuggling, but we didn't agree to invade Canada. So they literally stop at the border. So the American generals, go up to the coal mill and they, and they try to see what they can do as far as uh, seizing that area and testing the water around Illinois. Uh, but by the morning after the battle, um, the American generals are like, well, it is November 20th, November 21st. It's getting cold up here. So they actually go back to Plattsburgh. Um, most of the, uh, at that point, um, you're right. The water does become a, a huge, um, area of historical interest because there are boats on Lake Champlain. There are sloops and there are gunboats and there are bateaux that are uh, critical to the events that are going on. And one of the neat things that I found in my research was that some of the guys who had been stationed in Swanton and some of the guys who signed up for military service in Swanton, they ended up being stationed on some of the sloops that were active on Lake Champlain. So if any of your listeners are familiar with Thomas McDonough, um, some of the guys who had been stationed in Swanton ended up being on uh, the Sloop President, which was McDonough's uh, flagship when you get into the war, and then two other uh, sloops that uh, get renamed a little bit later on. Uh, but there aren't as uh, any big naval battles uh, until you get to 1814, and that's where you get to the Battle of Plattsburgh, which basically ends the war in this area. That's really interesting. And also, I wanted to ask you, um, why do you think we do not pay as, which is, I'll be honest with you, I was always interested in the War of 1812, and I think it was over maybe 10 years ago, there was a documentary in a few parts that came out in the History Channel about the War of 1812, and I still uh -huh. felt like I need to know more, you know, about this. Why are we as a country not as interested, do you think, in the War of 1812? I mean, it was so much came out of that war for us also. And so many things happened. Yeah, well, I think, 
Uh, I think part of it is um, it does not fit the American narrative of uh, what we teach our uh, our students in school or what some people teach in, in school. Uh, the American um, success in the War of 1812 is not a high point of history. Uh, if you take a look at the numbers, uh, the Canadians should actually be very proud, and the English who were stationed in Canada, they should be proud that they were able to hold off, even though the United States was young. Um, basically, throughout the entire war, the American military maybe gets a few miles into Canada, but at no point in time was Montreal ever seriously threatened. Uh, and just the whole burning of Washington, um, you don't get the sense that the uh, American military was that organized or that successful. So I don't think a lot of people hear much about the War of 1812 was because it was frustrating. And, and I don't think it was a war, at least in this area, where a lot of people were interested in defending its origins. And uh, as far as like big military achievements by the Americans throughout the country, you know, you have the Battle of New Orleans and you have a, a couple of others, the Battle of Lake Erie, but uh, there just are not that many, uh, I guess, noteworthy patriotic moments. So when you get to World War II or the Civil War, those are, are, are full of uh, of right and wrong and, and America being on the right side or, or fighting for the right cause. So, Do you think this war, was, the War of 1812, was a wake-up call to the government about needing to have you know a standing army to defend or having properly trained officers? Yeah, um, I, I, I think so. Uh, I don't get into too much of that in the book, but um, when specifically to the fall of 1812, when you've got a 5,000 man army and you're on the doorstep of Canada and you do have a chance of taking Montreal uh, to have two fifths of that army just say, no, we're really not crossing the border. I I, I think it was a wake up call for um, a lot of, people who thought in military terms about what was the best way to organize a standing army. And, you know, the South had that trouble during the civil war. There were instances in the civil war where rebelling States, their uh, state militias did not want to cross the border to defend other States. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so yeah, I I think there's a, I think you may have uh, hit on a a good historical uh, point there. And Jason, uh, before I let you go, I wanted to say that, so we're recording this on the Wednesday before the Monday when your book comes out. And your mon- yeah, on Monday, which is August 19th, your book does come out. And yep. do you have any events for the book you want to plug? Yeah, well, um, so uh, I just got done speaking with the St. Albans Messenger, which is the uh, local newspaper up here, uh, right before we went on air. And uh, they said that they would probably run the feature for that this weekend. So if people wanted to read about the announcement, um, it'll be in this weekend's St. Albans Messenger. Also, uh, I'm going to be at the Eloquent Page, which is a used bookstore here in St. Albans, on the 24th for a book signing. And then I will be over at the uh, used bookstore in Plattsburgh, New York, uh, Lake City Books, on September 7th to do a a book signing over there. And uh, I just want to say thank you to you guys at the History Press and Acadia Books and and Mike Kinsella 
because uh, this has been a good opportunity for me. And uh, I've had I have um, five complimentary copies of the book. Uh, I gave a signed copy to my mom. I gave a signed copy to my dad. Uh, I want to give a signed copy to the two people who helped me with the artwork. Uh, and then the uh, the final copy, complimentary copy that you guys gave me, I want to give actually to the Colchester Historical Society. They're a town that's just south of us. Uh, the real quick, if I could tell your 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 readers or your listeners, of course. Um, the uh, the genesis of the book came because my wife had done a genealogy presentation at the Colchester Historical Society, and just by chance, one of the members of the historical society down there was asking my wife if she knew anybody else for programming for events. And uh, I, uh, my wife came home and let me know. Uh, and it was very nice too, because I enjoy doing these things. And obviously I love talking about the war of 1812, but, um, that, uh, she had signed me up for the April or May Colchester historical society meeting to do my war of 1812 presentation. And so I show up in, uh, eight, I show up, um, in April of May of last year. And one of the historical society members has an email from Mike Kinsella, uh, asking me to get in contact with him. And apparently, to, to my benefit, one of the things that Mike does is he, by doing his job, he takes a look at some of the programming of the historical societies. So Mike and I had a conversation or two by phone after that. And then I think it was by, by May, he had offered, by late May, he had offered me the, the book deal. So I wrote the book um, last summer and last fall and handed it in to, uh, to you guys in uh, late January or February. And, uh, yeah, just a, a, a real nice thank you to you guys because this has been a, a great research opportunity for me, and, and I really enjoyed writing the book. I really enjoyed reading it, and I am a publicist at the History Press, but I'm not your publicist. But when I saw the book, I knew I had to talk to you. So this is kind of a way for me to nerd out, too, because I get to talk to historians and learn more about subjects that interest me. So thank you for writing the book, and thank you for being with us today. Yeah, nerding out is a perfect term because uh, when you get into something at this level of detail, uh, you uh, just look for other people who may be interested. So, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. I want to thank Jason, and I want to thank you for joining me for another edition of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. Arcadia Publishing and the History Press, we are proud champions for the preservation of local history.